So we're continuing our series on what Luke tells us about Jesus' birth. And as I was studying this week's passage, it struck me that uh, the most engaging stories are the ones that, that build tension as the plot line develops. You know how those stories go, that the plot is unfolding, but, but questions come up and problems develop and difficulties arise through the story and, and the tension builds and builds and builds until finally at the end, resolution comes. Yes, we love stories like that. And the reason I mention that is that the Holy Spirit leads Luke to write this section that we're studying today just that way. We're gonna see tension developing and building and then resolution in an unexpected way. Now here's a little bit of background. A few weeks ago we saw that the angel Gabriel came and talked to Zechariah and told him that even though he and his wife were well past childbearing years, Elizabeth was going to get pregnant and give birth to John, who had been prophesied throughout the Old Testament as the one preparing the way for the Messiah, which meant that the Messiah is coming soon. Then Luke tells us that the angel Gabriel goes and talks to a young teenage virgin girl named Mary and tells her that God's power is going to supernaturally come upon her without any sexual relations with any man. She is going to conceive and give birth then to Jesus the Messiah, the God-man, fully God, fully man, who comes to save people from sin. And then last week, we saw pregnant Mary and pregnant Elizabeth and Baby John in Elizabeth's womb, all responding to Jesus with overflowing joy. And that brings us then to this week when we're going to see the birth of John, Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. So let's start with verse 57, and I want to ask the question, what dramatic tension rises in the story of John's birth? Start with verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. Now remember, Elizabeth and Zechariah are well past childbearing years here, and when she gives birth, all the neighbors and the family members and the relatives come to celebrate. And part of the celebration involved circumcision on the eighth day and naming this little baby boy. But as they move towards naming the child, a problem arises. The tension starts to build. End of verse 59. And they would have called him Zachariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. See, the firstborn would normally be called, named after the father, Zechariah. But Elizabeth says, no, his name is going to be John. And so all the family members and neighbors, they want to ask Zechariah. But remember, Zechariah has not been able to talk for nine months since he didn't believe what the angel Gabriel had told him. So what happens in verse 62? 
They made signs to his father. It seems that not only could he not talk, but he couldn't hear as well. So they made signs to his father, Zechariah, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Feel the drama building? And as he asked for a writing tablet, he, he wrote, picture this, everybody's watching over his shoulder, his name is, big letters, John. Let's make this clear, okay? His name is John. And they all wondered. And look at what happens next. Immediately, his, Zachariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. So just as the angel Gabriel had said, your speech will be restored when all these things that you've doubted would happen, have happened. And that's exactly what takes place. And this shocked everyone. He had been speechless for nine months. Now, boom, he's talking again. Notice how many times Luke uses the word all in verse 65. Fear came on all their neighbors. Everybody's talking about this. All these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. That's a really big area. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So can you feel the, the dramatic tension? Okay, Elizabeth and Zechariah, old age, get pregnant, gives birth to John, or gives birth to a baby. What's his name going to be? Certainly Zechariah. No, John. Zechariah says it's John. Zechariah starts speaking. And so everybody throughout all the hill country, everybody's talking, talking. Did you hear about Zechariah and Elizabeth? They named him John. Who is this child going to be? What's happening here? So that's the big question we're left hanging on at the end of verse 66. Who is this child going to be? So how is this question answered? It's very interesting, surprising. Starting in verse 67. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies. And look at what the Holy Spirit gives him to prophesy. Starting from verse 67. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So the big question at the end of verse 66 is, who is this baby John going to be? The Holy Spirit fills Zechariah. He starts to prophesy and says, God is bringing a horn of salvation here. Is that a reference to John? Well, we might think so, because that was the big question we were left with. But the problem is, this horn of salvation is going to be born in the line of David. And John the Baptist was not in the line of David. John the Baptist was in the line of Levi. Who was born in the line of David? Church, Jesus was born in the line of David. So the horn of salvation is Jesus. Now, again, feel how shocking this is. Everybody in all the hill country of Judea talking, who's John going to be? Who's John going to be? Luke has led us up. This is the big question at the end of verse 66. The Holy Spirit fills Zechariah. He prophesies, and he starts talking not about John, but about Jesus. Why? Because John's whole purpose in coming was not to point to himself. John's whole purpose in coming was to point to Jesus. 
So even here, the Holy Spirit is doing that as Zachariah doesn't answer the question. He'll answer it in a few verses, but here he wants to focus on Jesus Christ. And Zechariah gives five crucial truths about Jesus in these verses. First, as we've seen, Jesus is the horn of salvation. Read verse 69 again. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now that word horn does not refer to a musical instrument like a trumpet. It's referring to the horns. Horns, I like to think of a big ox with big old horns. That's the picture that is used here. In the Old Testament, this idea is used frequently. The word horn is used as a symbol of strength and power, which can conquer enemies. You can see that in Psalm 92, verses 9 and 10, just to give you an example. Psalm 92, 9 and 10. For behold your enemies, O Lord. For behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. So see, Jesus is like an ox whose huge horns save us from our enemies. That's the picture here. Try to think of an example. Imagine that you are a little sheep and you're out in this field and you, this little sheep, you look up and you see this, um, what do you call it, a pack, a couple of packs of wolves running towards you with their teeth bared and they're growling and they're hungry and they see you what a nice little dinner they're going to have. And so there you are, this little lamb, this, this pack of dozens of wolves coming towards you and you are powerless. There's just nothing that you can do. But then a huge snorting ox comes, lumbers up, stands between you and those wolves and starts swinging his head back and forth and impaling and goring and killing these wolves, throwing the right and left until he stops and the wolves are all gone. All your enemies are gone. That's the picture that we should have when we think about Jesus being an ox whose huge horns save us from our enemies. Second, Jesus as the horn was foretold by ancient prophets. This is so important for us to understand. We've seen all kinds of prophecies. Here's another one. Read verses 69 and 70 together. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So Jesus, the Messiah, as the horn of salvation was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus was born, Here's one example of one of those prophecies, Psalm 132, 17 and 18. God says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So God will make a horn sprout up for David, the Messiah, like an, like an ox with, with huge horns horns will be born in the line of David. And as a result, all of the enemies will be clothed with shame. This huge, powerful ox with these massive horns is going to conquer and subdue all the enemies. And this is prophesied 
in Psalm 132, which was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Now, here's one implication of this truth about prophecies. Jesus did not come on the scene saying, I've got a brand new religion for everybody. Everybody who's been before me has been wrong. I, I finally got the truth, brand new religion, no precedent, here we go. That's not what he said. He came and his coming was foretold throughout the Old Testament as far back as the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see prophecy about Jesus. And so Jesus is predicted all through the Old Testament for the thousands of years of the Old Testament, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. So he was in sync with what God had been doing from the very beginning of the world. He didn't come saying, I've got a brand new religion. He came saying, I'm fulfilling all that you've heard through the Old Testament, all that God has done since creation. So let that truth of the weight of prophecy strengthen you to trust your life to Jesus Christ all the more. The baby at whose manger we are bowing to worship has been prophesied for thousands of years in the Old Testament. Confirmation after confirmation after confirmation. Are you trusting him this morning? Are you trusting him? Zechariah's third point is that Jesus, the horn of salvation, will save us from our enemies. That's verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now what enemies is Zechariah talking about here? I think he's talking about two kinds. Human enemies and second, spiritual enemies. I think he's talking about human enemies here and he's going to talk about spiritual enemies in a couple more verses. We'll get there. But Jesus will save us from all of our human enemies. Now, if you think about that, it's clear that that has not happened yet, right? Think about the early church, James having his head cut off by the Roman government. Think about Stephen being stoned by the Jewish leaders. Think about Paul. The early church was not protected from all their human enemies, right? Think about our brothers and sisters in North Korea this morning, or in China, or in other areas. So we are not yet saved, delivered from all of our human enemies. But we have to understand that even though Jesus brought the kingdom, he said the kingdom of God is here, it wasn't here in its fullness yet. The kingdom is here partially, but it will not come in its fullness until the second coming. And at the second coming of Jesus Christ, all of our human enemies will be gone. Satan and his demons and all those who persist in unbelief will be cast into hell and we will be welcomed into the new heavens and the new earth which will be free from all human enemies. So, church, don't let human enemies discourage you. Human enemies will not last forever. The new heavens and the new earth will last forever and there will be no enemies there. Jesus delivers us from all of our human enemies. Fourth, Jesus will fulfill the holy covenant God swore to Abraham, verses 72 and 73. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. 
Now, notice that word covenant. This word covenant is a very important word for us to understand. One reason we know that is it's used over 300 times in the Bible. So what is this covenant? Well, a covenant is, is a, like a contract. And in the Bible, God has given us his covenant, his contract, what he promises to do for us and what he asks us to do in, re in response. What he promises and what we're called to do. That's the covenant. Now, the problem is that I've found, and you've probably seen this too, is that many, many churchgoers do not understand the covenant. They think that the covenant God makes with us is he says, I will bless you and I will favor you um, if you become good enough, if you become good enough to earn and merit my goodness and favor, then I will show you goodness and favor. And we think that God gives us a long list of the things we need to do in order to try to earn our goodness and become worthy, deserving of his love and favor. And so there's this long list. We've got to be honest. Don't use bad words. Don't have bad thoughts. Love your neighbor. Work hard at your job. Give to the poor. Don't get mad. And on and on and on and on. So it's a long list. We've got to earn our way into God's love and favor. But see, that covenant is not in this book. It's nowhere in this book. That's just a figment of people's imagination. God just scratches his head and said, where did they get that? It's not in the book. Read the book. Here's where the covenant is. So what is the covenant that God makes with us? It's very different than what I just said. It says that we've all sinned against God. Not just have we sinned, but we are sinners. We are rebels against him. That's who we have been. And we've deserved eternal punishment from God forever. That, that's where the covenant starts. But then God says, in great mercy, I've sent Jesus, my son, to die on the cross to pay for sins, to save people from their sins. That's, that's, that's my commitment. That's what he said. And he says, because of Jesus, here's what I promise to do for you. And here's a long list. Here's where the long list comes in. This is what God promises to do for us. Change our hearts. Give us faith. Forgive all our sins. Clothe us with Jesus' perfect righteousness. Love us. Care for us. Adopt us into his family. Progressively free us from sin throughout our lives. Give us love for other people, including our, our enemies. Free us from worry and fear. Fill us with joy in him now and forever. Use every trial in our lives to bring us even more joy in him. He will guide us in our decisions. He will provide for us financially. He will use us to lead people to faith in Christ. He will strengthen us when we're weak. He'll convict us when we sin. He'll give us everything we need. He'll raise us from the dead. He'll give us joy in him in heaven forever. And I've just scratched the surface, okay? This is what God promises to do for us. So he's got the long list, and he says, now here's what I want you to do. One thing. One thing. One thing. Trust me. Faith. Trust me. And, and I broke it down, down into three parts. It's just helped me. We start by turning from our sin, and we, and we come to Jesus as we are. I need you. I have no righteousness to recommend myself. I have sinned against you. I need a savior. I need mercy. I need your compassion. So we turn and we come to Jesus as we are and we want him 
to free us from sin. I hate my sin. It keeps me from the joy of knowing you. Set me free from sin. So we're, we're turning to Jesus as we are. We want, turn T, want W. We want to be freed from sin. And then we trust. T-W-T doesn't spell anything, but you can jot it down. We trust that he's going to do everything he's promised for me to do. So God has got this long list. I will do this and this and this and this and this and this and this for you. You trust me. Trust me. You're weak, trust me to strengthen you. You're being tempted, trust me to set you free from that. You're feeling far from me, trust me to draw near to you as you draw near to me. Trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. That's the contract. So here's my question, church. Are you turning to Jesus right now as you are? I have no righteousness to recommend me. I have no goodness to warrant your love and your favor, but I'm coming to you as I am, and I'm trusting you, your mercy. I want to be set free from my sin so I can know you, so I can have the joy of knowing you. I'm trusting you to forgive me, change me, fill me. You're, you're coming to him as you are. That's faith. Is that what's in your heart this morning? If so, the God of the universe who's created everything, who's ruling over everything, is passionately delighting in you. And with all of his omnipotent power, he's pursuing you with all the promises that he's given, doing this, doing this, doing this. You, you have no idea the power of God, the passion of God, the love of God moving towards you with everything that you need simply because you've You've turned to Jesus as you are. You want him to set you free from sin, to forgive you for sin, and you are trusting him to do what he's promised. That's the contract that the Messiah, Jesus, ratified by his death and his resurrection. There's the contract. Read it. It's all through the Bible. So that is the fourth point. And the fifth point that Zechariah tells us about Jesus. Jesus will enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. Verses 74 and 75. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, earlier I said that Jesus, the horn of our salvation, will deliver us from our uh, human enemies. And here we see that he's delivering us from our spiritual enemies. Because our spiritual enemies are the sins that make us unholy and unrighteous, the sins which keep us from being holy and righteous before God. Those are our spiritual enemies. Now, why is it so important that we be holy and righteous before God? I hope you feel this morning it is so important that you are growing in holiness and righteousness. One reason it's so important is because if you aren't growing in holiness and righteousness, if you are holding on to some areas of sin, well, I'm, I'm going to keep these, I'm, I'm going to hang on to these, if that's what's in your heart, then you have no reason to think you've been saved. Because saved people are not sinless. We're, we're, we're getting progressively more and more righteous, but saved people confess their sins. Saved people fight against sin. Saved people repent of their sin. So that's one reason it's so important that we have those enemies that are keeping us from, unhold, from holiness and righteousness, that we have those destroyed. Here's a second reason 
It's so important that we are walking in holiness and righteousness. It's because the more we walk in holiness and righteousness, the more of God's joy and love and presence is going to fill our hearts. Picture it like this. We all have heart thirsts for living water. We want joy and peace and meaning and fullness and we have heart thirsts for living water and God is a big, huge water tank of living water above us and there's a pipeline coming down from God ready to, to bring that living water right into our souls. But the problem is that sin clogs up that water tank, clogs it up. Sin clogs the pipeline like the sludge of bitterness gets gunked up in there and the muck of jealousy clogs up that pipeline and the, the clog of lust and the slime of pride, the goop of laziness, okay, the scum of gluttony, the goo of gossip, okay, you know all those, right? And those can so clog up the pipeline that it's like maybe just a little, like a little drip or maybe, maybe just no living water at all coming through anymore. And so when there's sin clogging up the pipeline, the life is gone. The living water is gone. And that may be where some of you are at this morning. You think, what's wrong? What's wrong with me spiritually? Well, look at the pipeline. Can you see through the pipeline? Or is it clogged with unholiness and unrighteousness? These sins are our spiritual enemies. Enemies. The more clogged the pipeline is, the less joy in God we feel. But now here's the good news. When Jesus died on the cross, he not only paid sin's guilt, he also broke sin's power. He broke sin's power when he died on the cross. Doesn't mean we become sinless. We won't become sinless until heaven, but we will be growing more and more in holiness and righteousness all the way through to the end. Okay, so how do we do this? How do we conquer the enemies of sin and grow in holiness and righteousness? It's not by gritting our teeth and trying harder. It's not what the Bible says. What we do is we, we come to Jesus weak as we are, tempted as we are, with bitterness in our hearts or impatience or frustration. We come to him just as we are and we say, help me, look at me, help me. You've broken sin's power on the cross. Apply that to me now. And then what we do is we open up the Bible and we find scriptures pertaining to whatever temptation that we are battling. And we pray over those scriptures until the Messiah, the powerful ox with huge horns of salvation comes out swinging his head and goring and impaling and killing all those sins and destroying them and that you'll experience that this last week there was an, an area I, I knew God wanted me to obey him in something and I just did not want to um, didn't want to but I knew that he wanted me to and I knew that meant there was a problem okay um, and so I, I tried to do what I just described. I, I said, Father, I, I, don't, I do not want to do this. That's sin, I can tell. Don't I have a clog, be, pipeline be clogged? So I, come, and, come and help me, meet me. And I, and I thought about verses like Psalm 1611, where David says, you will make known to me the path of life. 
And as I prayed over that verse, it, I just thought, okay, what that means is that, that the path of life is a path of obedience. That's where life in the Lord is. The path of disobedience is not, there's, there's no life there. That is a death path. You, we've all walked that path, right? There's no life on that path. All the life is over here on this path of obedience. And so I was praying over scriptures like that. And as I prayed, and as I asked God for help, my Messiah, Jesus, the strong ox with horns of salvation, came and swinging his head and killing that sin, and he nailed it, he gored it, he killed it. it my heart was changed, and I, I, I wanted to obey. And, and when I did, there was life there. There was life there. So here's, here's what this means. Jesus, the horn of salvation, frees us from enemies, personal enemies, partially now fully at the second coming, spiritual enemies, sin progressively now. Whenever we face a temptation, he will do that. So Zechariah gives us five truths about Jesus the Messiah. Then, starting in verse 76, he talks to his son. It's so tender. He, he does answer the question, who will this child be? First, he wants to make sure we understand it's all about the Messiah. But yes, let me talk, talk to my son. So who will John be and what will he do? First, Zechariah gives us three main points. First, John will be the prophet of the Most High. Verse 76, picture Zechariah. Now his attention is shifted from the Messiah to his boy. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Huge honor. John the Baptist is going to be a prophet like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel. He's going to be a, a prophet, prophet of the Most High. Huge honor for John. But there's a, there's a, there's a little implication I want to bring this out, though, for us living here in, in Abu Dhabi. I want you to compare what Zachariah says is true about John with what the angel told Mary was true about Jesus back in chapter 1, verse 32. In Luke 1, 32, the angel says to Mary, speaking of Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Not the prophet of the Most High, the Son of the Most High. Now, why is that so important? It's because there are many people we will talk to here in this part of the world who will be glad to say that Jesus is a prophet of the Most High, but not that he's the Son, not that he's fully God, God the Son. And we want to be able to respect and humbly dialogue with people of other religions. But part of that means there's times where we need to humbly say, that's not what the Bible teaches and humbly open up to these two verses in Luke chapter 1 and show John the Baptist was the prophet of the Most High. He was a prophet. Jesus is the Son of the Most High. He is the Son of God. He is categorically different than a prophet. He is the Messiah, truly God, truly man. And we need to be able to talk that way. And so I want to encourage you, this Christmas season, may God give us opportunities to humbly open up our Bibles and wisely and respectfully say, we can respect each other, we have different opinions, I respect your views, you can respect mine, but let me just be clear, this is what Christians believe. 
There's a big difference here. And may God use that to open eyes and free hearts and shine his light. So John will be prophet of the Most High. Second, John will prepare people with the message of salvation through forgiveness of sins. Oh, this is sweet. End of verse 76 through 77. For you, John, my son, will go before the Lord, Jesus, the Lord, to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. So I thought about it like this way. Some of you have been, you know what it's like to be deeply in debt financially. You know that the, the weight of that and the, the burden of that. And it can be like just dark clouds resting upon you. But you, you work and you work and you work and you save and you work and you, and you finally pay off all that debt. It's paid off in full. And the weight is lifted and the burden is gone and the dark clouds are blown away and the sun is shining. Okay, well, that's nothing compared to the forgiveness of sins. Because if, if we understand correctly, and, and again, in our culture today where we're, we really are discouraged from feeling guilty because that's not psychologically healthy, listen, it's psychological suicide to think you're not guilty before God. It is manifestly, massively psychologically healthy to own up to our guilt before God. Because if we don't own up to our guilt, we're never going to love the Savior and trust the Savior. So have you owned up to the reality that you have been in massive spiritual debt for your sin? Have you felt that? If you haven't, may you feel it now. And the reason I want you to feel it isn't so that you stay there, but it's so that you see the sweetness of the good news of the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of your sins. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, he cried out, it is finished, which meant paid in full. Every durham, every cent, every centavos, every whatever you use, paid in full. Zero, zero, dot, zero, zero, nothing more. You're forgiven. And let the, the weight lift off and let the burden depart and let the cloud of guilt and debt blow away and let the sunshine of God's love just shine upon you. Are you there? May it be. That's the second truth. Third truth. John will prepare the way and Jesus will bring light to those in darkness. Verses 78 through 90. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, here's Jesus, shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Then, he, then Luke concludes, and the child John grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now look back at verse 79. I feel like God wants us to home in on this picture of giving light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. It is so easy to lose sight of the fact that we are living in the midst of thousands and thousands of people who spiritually are living in pitch black darkness. 
darkness. And we can see the money and we can see all the, you know, the malls and all the stuff. And, and it's easy to lose sight of the fact that they're living in spiritual pitch black darkness. Your workplace is a place of pitch black darkness. Your neighborhood is a place of pitch black darkness. That's just the reality that, that we're facing here. And the good news is that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And he's called us to be shining with his light. He says, you are the light of the world. He is the light of the world, and by his light, we are the light of the world. So imagine that this room was pitch black dark, and there were blackout curtains there. I mean, like really, really dark, dark, dark here. Just imagine that. Now, the littlest flashlight, click, okay, could you all see it? The answer is, Yes, church, okay? You could all see it, right? Would, would all this pitch black darkness there like, like crush out the light so that you couldn't see it? No! The littlest light will overcome all the darkness wherever it goes. That's the beautiful picture. And so here's little you in your workplace. I mean, you feel little, like it's just little you, okay? I'm not saying that's true, but we feel that way, right? Here's little us in our, in our workplace. And the, the good news is that as we say, Lord, you are the light of the world. This place is full of darkness. Help me to shine this Christmas. Jesus will help you to do that. Reach out to people that are there. On your own time, not on company time, invite them out for coffee. Hear their story. And then share your story. Especially the most important part of your story. Share your story. And as you do that, light will be shining there. And God can use our light to set people free from the darkness and bring them into the light of knowing Jesus. Think about your neighborhood. I mean, imagine that your neighborhood, that all the electricity went off in your neighborhood and it was pitch black darkness. And, and you've got like all kinds of flashlights in your house. Think of how terrible it'd be if you just kept all those flashlights in the house and your neighborhood, neighbors are stumbling around, fumbling around. You've got the light, go help your neighbors. And You've got the light, so go and help your neighbors. This Christmas, shine the light of Jesus into your neighborhood. Maybe bake some cookies. Do what, what one young couple in our church did this week. Bake cookies and go and give them and say, Merry Christmas, here's some cookies, and get to know them, and exchange phone numbers maybe, and invite them over for coffee sometime. Invite them to the Christmas Eve service we have here, if, if the Lord opens the door to that, or to carols out in the desert. But this Christmas, in your workplace and in your neighborhood, shine with Jesus' light. Don't let your neighborhood stay in darkness. Don't let your workplace stay in darkness. The Messiah has come. Shine with his light. Let's pray together. Why don't you stand? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would, right now, as, as a result of the scriptures we've seen and the worship song we're going to sing, that you would shine even more of the light of Jesus, his beauty, his mercy, his glory into our hearts so that we leave here shining more and so that we will be shining with your light in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and that you will use our light to bring light to people who are in darkness right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.